Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another educational, fun episode of Emergency Trauma Mama. And I have been gone for probably a hot minute or so, give or take. Depends on who's counting. But I'm back. So welcome. And if this is your first time tuning in, welcome, welcome, welcome. I think today we're going to talk a little bit about some ATLS scenarios. Uh, So for those of you that have taken the course in the past, of course, um, the advanced trauma uh, life support scenarios that are located in an old edition of the appendix area of your ATLS book, it's located on page 350 if you want to follow along. And if you do not have that edition and you're just listening, well, settle in. You're in for a real treat. So we're going to be talking about how to triage and the basic ATLS principles that follow every trauma resuscitation. So in this particular scenario, it's giving you the role of you being the only physician or mid-level provider or nurse or whatever role that you're in that day. Um, You're the only one available Um, in approximately a 100-bed community emergency department. So super small ED, not a trauma center. However, you are going to be be receiving multiple car crash victims. So you're the only provider available. It's a 100-bed community ED, so kind of dial yourself back if you work in a level 1 trauma center. And you have all the bells and whistles and everybody available to you at all times. You need to take a a few steps back. And if you're working in a very small ED, this is right up your alley. So you know that you don't have a lot of resources. And again, put yourself in the mindset that you are not technically an ACS trauma center or state designated level trauma center. So you are working and you have one nurse and one uh, nurse assistant or HUP or HUC or tech or whatever you call them at your particular hospital. Approximately 10 minutes ago, you were notified um, by the MICN or the nurse or you heard the radio go off and you noted that the AMBO is going to be bringing you multiple patients from one single MBC. So no further report. That's all you know. And within several minutes, you get two AMBOs with five patients who are all occupants in the same MBC. This particular MBC was traveling at approximately 60 miles per hour or 96 kph uh, before it crashed. So... Now I'm going to give you your patients, so I just want you to think a little bit about each one and perhaps what their differential diagnosis might be, what you think might be going on with them um, based on their mechanism of injury, any injuries that you actually already see, or perhaps that the medics are going to tell you in their report, and their vital signs. And, of course, their vital signs on scene can be very different from their vital signs when they roll into your trauma recess room. So keep that in mind. And just kind of be thinking through your whole missed report um, and be thinking about potential differential diagnosis based on mechanism of injury. All right, so patient A is an atom. 
a 45-year-old man who was the driver of the vehicle. He apparently was not wearing his seatbelt. Upon impact, he was thrown against the windshield on admission, or now he's rolling into your ED. He is notably in severe respiratory distress. The pre-hospital personnel provide the following information to you after the preliminary assessment. Injuries include, one, severe maxillofacial trauma with bleeding from the nose and the mouth. Two, an angulated deformity of the left forearm. And three, multiple abrasions over the anterior chest wall, which as you're looking, you can see the shirt is half cut off and you can see visible seatbelt marks or abrasions. Um, vital signs are as follows. BP is 150 over 80, heart rate 120, respirator is 40, and GCS is 8. Okay, next patient, a 38-year-old female passenger who was apparently thrown from the front seat and found 30 feet or 9 meters, if you're from the UK, from the car. On admission, so she's rolling into your trauma recess room, she's awake, alert, but she's complaining of belly pain and chest pain. The report you're given from the medics indicates that upon palpating her hips, she also reported pain and you suspect a fracture-related um, crepitus, obviously from the pelvis, um, so that's of concern. Vital signs are as follows. BP is 110 over 90, heart rate's 140, respiratory rate 25 breaths per minute. Okay, those are your first two patients, A, Adam, B, boy, moving on to C, Charlie. You have a 48-year-old male passenger who was found under the vehicle. You were told that he was confused on scene. He responded slowly to verbal stimuli. Injuries include multiple abrasions to face, chest, and abdomen, which could be expected because he was found under the vehicle. Breath sounds are absent on the left. His abdomen is tender to palpation. Vital signs are as follows. BP is 90 over 50, heart rate 140, respirators 35, and GCS is 10. Okay, that's patient C as in Charlie. D as in dog. Now you have a 25-year-old woman who was extricated from the backseat of the vehicle. She's eight months pregnant. Everybody's favorite patient is the pregnant trauma patient. So now, technically... You don't just have five patients, do you? You have six because that's mom plus baby because she's eight months pregnant. So obviously the fetus is viable. So you need to be thinking, I'm in a small community hospital. What are my resources? Well, um, obviously this is always going to happen in the middle of the night. It's going to be three in the morning. There's going to be nobody around. Um, you don't have residents. You don't have any PGY, one, two, threes, nothing. You got bare bones here. So you can call your labor and delivery though. And I would be calling all cars at that point too, because in this type of facility, this could quantify for a, a, an MCI. You could say, well, potentially it is a disaster um, because you have multiple victims and you're, you're not a trauma center. So um, I definitely would call labor and delivery, call the house supervisor, um, and have her call the on-call OBGYN because you're busy. 
doing other things. So you do need to um, get a labor and delivery nurse down there and get this patient on the TOCO belt. Um, so she is eight months pregnant, again, behaving hysterically, of course. She's just, A, she's been through a traumatic event. B, she's pregnant. So <laughs> she's just emphatically anxious, um, not only because potentially she's um, a shock patient and she could be an hypovolemic shock, but also because she's worried about her baby. So again, not one patient, two patients. She's hysterical and she's complaining of belly pain. Um, injuries include multiple abrasions to her face and to the anterior abdominal wall. Uh, you are told their abdomen is tender to palpation and she's in active labor. So again, gotta move fast. Hopefully you have a preset pack in your trauma room. If not, you should. Um, hopefully you have access to a panda warmer. Uh, most really small, even tertiary small community hospitals do have a panda warmer um, in one of their rooms, hiding somewhere. Uh, I would advise you if you do work in a smaller hospital to know where it is and to know how to use it. And if you don't, to get an in-service on it for your monthly skills or your skills day or whatever you do for your skills, you need to know. Because this is not the time when you're getting all these traumas um, back to back to back um, to say, hmm, you know, it would be a good idea if I knew how to turn on the panda warmer um, and even just start the warmer. However, you don't. So again, knowledge is power. So make sure you know where your equipment is in the trauma recess room and how to access it and how to use it before these types of patients roll into your room. Um, vital signs are as follows. Blood pressure is 120 over 80, heart rate 100, respiratory rate 25 breaths per minute. Okay, so that's patient D. And last but not least, patient E, as in Edward, is a six-year-old boy. So now we have, we had a pregnant trauma patient. Now we have a pediatric trauma patient. So we have a six-year-old boy who was extricated from the floor of the rear seat. None of these patients were wearing seatbelts, I don't think. Um, okay, back on task here. At the scene, he was alert and talking. He now responds to painful stimuli only by crying out. So obviously, change in LOC. So we're thinking neuro. Um, injuries include multiple abrasions, angulated deformity of the right lower leg. So of course, we've got to have that lovely distracting injury, uh, you know, compound tip, tip fracture, whatever. There is dried blood around his nose and his mouth. Vital signs are as follows. Blood pressure 110 over 70, heart rate 180. If that doesn't set off your uh, red flags and your bells and whistles, um, it should. And your respiratory rate is 35 breaths per minute. Again, he's six. But again, that 180 um, narrow pulse pressure uh, to Kipnik. Remember, the four C's of children, children can compensate until they crash. So C, 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 C. So they may look good for a while. Remember, he's already had a change in his neurological status. So now the next thing on your agenda is to outline the steps that you would take is in order to triage these five patients. So again, they're all rolling up simultaneously. You're in a very small um, 
hospital, not necessarily a trauma center, so you need to begin with your primary assessment. Based on all of that information, you want to establish your priorities, right? So who's first, second, third, fourth, fifth? Again, obviously there's there was no huge MCI with like 25 patients, but for your hospital and for your ED, this is that kind of situation where you're looking at them and deciding who do I treat first, second, third, fourth, fifth, because you don't have massive amounts of staff. You have a skeleton crew, if you will. And again, it's three in the morning, so it's night shift and you just don't have a lot of people. So who are you going to treat first? So think about that based on the information. So what do we start with? Remember where we have our March um, scenario that we're using. So obviously your massive um, hemorrhage, airway, so on and so forth. Um, so we're going with the March resuscitation mnemonic. Um, of course, the old way, A, B, C, D, E. But looking at all of these patients, who would you suspect is the priority. So remember that we didn't see or hear that anybody was actively hemorrhaging to death. So although there was some plenty of distracting injuries, um, everybody kind of had bumps and bruises and lumps and ecchymosis and one guy sounded like he might have had his seatbelt on. However, Lots of distracting injuries will lead a provider down the wrong path. So remember, who's, so no one's actively hemorrhaging to death. Okay, so move on to the next thing. So airway, who has the airway problem? So remember, the patient A, he had severe maxillofacial trauma. So if that didn't set off your bells and whistles for intubation, 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 it should have. Um, You can always proceed with RSI or some places um, are actually doing um, like more of a delayed sequence intubation now, um, you know, where you actually have the O2 in their nose and you've got the mask on their mouth and you're kind of taking your time a little bit. Um, with this type of patient, we're, we're thinking more Lafour fracture because um, we don't have a film. We, we can't tell if it's one, two, or three. Um, however, with the severe maxillofacial f- trauma and with the mechanism of injury, so no seatbelt thrown against the actual steering wheel and the windshield. It doesn't say spidering of the windshield, but I'm going to go ahead and add that <laughs> based on his mechanism of injury and his face. So his face is all mashed up. He's got active bleeding, although he's not hemorrhaging to death, from his nose and his mouth. So what are we thinking here? We may have to crike this guy. So let's move on to why he's first. Obviously, he has an airway problem. It's major, major upper airway obstruction. Of course, this guy is going to need to be tubed or criked first. Um, He has fractures, hematoma. Um, We don't know what else is going on in his brain, but we know that he can't support his own airway, correct? Because his GCS is 8. I still go back to the old school way of thinking, and GCS is less than 8. We don't always intubate now. 
Um, there is such a thing as entitled CO2 and looking at the whole clinical picture. However, this is a trauma patient and he has a Lafour fracture and he's tachycardic. He's hypertensive, but we don't really know if he has underlying, you know, existing hypertension or if he's starting to get some weird Cushing's triad. We don't know that yet, but he's tachycardic, he's tachyptic, his GCS is less than eight. He can't support his own airway based on his maxillofacial fractures. We need to um, crack this guy. Um, so he's your priority. And so your second priority, there was a pretty big clue when I said something about breast sounds, because I really didn't tell you anything else about anybody else's breast sounds except for patient C. And he was the 48-year-old male patient who was found under the car. So he's already rolling in with absent breast sounds. So hemonumo, um, so you've got no breast sounds whatsoever. His admin's tender to palpation. Based on this dude's mechanism of injury, I'm sure he flipped over like, kind of the washing machine um, mechanism of injury, as I like to call it, almost like end over end, like you would see in a rollover. Um, just kind of that washing machine syndrome where they just get flipped all around, like like your clothes are in the washing machine. And so, again, not only does he have, um, you know, no breast sounds on the left, but he's probably got abdomen, pelvis, you name it. And, of course, he's already... 90 over 50, he's tachycardic at 140, and he's tachyptic at 35 breaths per minute. Who knows? I mean, he could have a full chest on the other side. Um, his GCS is 10. So this guy, um, he's your other, he's your second priority because of the absent breath sounds. You need to make him the second priority. Of course, you have attention pneumo. It could be hemonumo. Um, you can just do a needle um, decomp or just throw it, you know, obviously, if you can just throw a chest tube in this guy, that would be great. Um, depends on your level of expertise, but definitely a, a needle decompression to relieve that pneumo. Um, your third priority. What do you guys think about that one? Remember, I gave you a little clue when I said there was a change in LOC. So anytime we have a change in LOC, we're automatically, based on this mechanism injury, going to suspect that there's a huge amount of neurological trauma. Again, your six-year-old boy was extricated from the floor of the beer seat. So probably not in any kind of proper restraints. Who knows? Um, again, this kid was alert and talking, and now he's only alert to painful stimuli. Again, there was the um, blood pressure was 110 over 70, but heart rate 180. So remember, children can compensate until they crash. The four C's of children, heart rate 180, oh my word, that is not good at all. So again, this child has polytrauma, right? Multiple trauma everywhere. Head trauma, chest, abdomen, pelvis, um, change in LOC, no bueno. Um, your initial treatment, of course, is to secure and protect the airway and then to move on through your uh, primary and secondary assessment. Of course, again, if you don't do kids in your facility, which I'm going to go ahead and jump on the um, thought train that 
This 100-bed community hospital does not have a pediatric trauma surgeon on call. This kid needs to be medevaced out. So transfer this kid to a peds trauma center, preferably a level one, a level two, whatever's closest. But get this kid out. Um, so priority number four. What do you think about that one? Da-da-da. Patient B. Remember patient B was the 38-year-old female who was thrown from the front seat and found 30 feet from the vehicle. Again, this patient was alert, awake, but also complaining of chest and abdominal pain. So that could be anything. However, big clue here that there's fracture-related crepitus when you do your gentle iliac squeeze um, on the pelvis. So um, also... 110 over 90, hmm, don't like that. Uh, heart rate 140, so already behind the eight ball, already tachycardic, already trying to compensate. Breasts are 25 per minute. Patients already trying to compensate. So patient B, as in boy. So sounds like they're, they're somewhat stable, but of course there's only those few hemodynamic abnormalities However, mechanism of injury, mechanism of injury, mechanism of injury, suspect pelvic fracture, uh, multiple injuries, and of course, already in hemorrhagic shock. So the compensation's there, but if you don't aggressively resuscitate her, she's not going to make it. So, and last but not least, although everyone wants to push this patient above some others, um, patient D is in dog your pregnant trauma patient. Remember, even though this is two patients, what do you like the best about her? Hemodynamically, she doesn't look that bad, right? Yeah, of course she's upset. Yes, she's very anxious. Yes, she's very scared. That sounds like a horror, horrifying um, car crash. So um, put yourself in that person's position and you would think about your child um, and the safety of your, your baby. And... So I probably would be hysterical as well. However, her vitals don't look too bad, but she has an imminent labor. The key to this patient is it doesn't say that she has bright red bleeding or that she's, you know, you know, spotting or that her uterus is prolapsed. So the things that we worry about, like abruptio placenta and those, you know, pregnant trauma patient things that we always worry about first, we're not hearing those key words. So that's why she actually is priority five. Um, the other thing about this is you're going to get help for this patient. And if you do need to do an imminent delivery, you do need to know all of those things that I mentioned earlier, such as panda warmer, precip pack, all those good things. Um, so yes, this patient is in active labor and it's probably precipitated by uh, the horrific car crash that she's just sustained. However, after she's examined and stabilized, you need to worry about, of course, fetal distress. So that's why I mentioned you need to get those labor and delivery nurses down there the ones that are actually certified to, you know, look for late D cells or any kind of fetal hypoxia. Because remember, if mom's hypoxic, baby's really hypoxic. So remember also supine hypotension syndrome for our pregnant trauma patients that come in C-collared and backboarded. So they may have that lower blood pressure, although hers was what, 120 over 80? 
So it didn't look too bad, but let's say she's 90 over 50, and you're like, oh no, she's in shock. Where's she bleeding from? But there's absolutely zero bleeding, and that tends to be because, you know, the baby is ready to be delivered, and, you know, that baby's on the vena cava, so that's going to dump the pressure. So just gently tilting um, the backboard to the left side. Um, Actually, now they're saying through evidence-based practice, it doesn't matter which side, However, just a gentle tilt. She doesn't need to be kind of hanging off. I've walked into many uh, trauma rooms with a pregnant trauma patient and seen them kind of like hanging on to their dear lives (laughs) with just a couple pillows underneath. And that's really not necessary. It's just that gentle tilt off to one side or the other to get the baby off of the vena cava. So then you just recheck her blood pressure and, you know, it's back up to 118 over whatever her normal tensive self is but um this particular patient didn't sound as if she had any supine hypotension syndrome symptoms so in summary um just think about all of your patients in a systematic way all the time no matter where you're working Um, whether you're on the night shift in a small community hospital or you're have the luxury of being the attending in a level one trauma center with all of the bells and whistles you've got a maxillofacial surgeon you yeah so you've got eent you've got plastics you've got ortho you've got neuro you've got everything at your fingertips always approach your trauma patients systematically in the same way and hopefully you won't go wrong so thank you so much for listening and i hope that you all have a wonderful morning afternoon or good night and thank you for tuning in and i will talk to you next time bye bye